So this past week, I had the pleasure of actually going to Texas and seeing my granddaughter for the first time in like nine months. And it was such a joy. And, but it was a little bit like, a little bit like nervous, right? Because you've heard the reports, like Texas is open. Like Mar beginning of March, Texas governor declared no more limiting, you know, all the businesses can be fully open. You don't have to wear masks anymore. And if you listen to the news reports, it's kind of like it's back to the wild, wild west again. You know, people carrying guns, nobody wearing masks. It's just it's crazy, right? But what I found when I got there was it looked a lot like here. Everybody's wearing masks still, which is kind of funny, right? Because when we were told you had to wear a mask, everybody's going, I'm not wearing a mask, right? But then you said, well, you don't have to wear a mask. Well, I'm going to wear a mask now. You know, because it's my idea, right? It's, which tells us something about ourselves, right? That, you know, we don't like to be really ruled over. We don't, we don't really like to be told what to do. And it's funny, too, because I've started making me think. It's like, well, what's it going to be like when they open up Illinois? Are people going to start, like, not wearing masks? And, and what's going to happen? And how long is it going to take for people not to wear a mask? And will people wear a mask the rest of their life, even though maybe an announcement comes that says, no more COVID? Right? It's, it's over with. It's been done. And, and you don't have to wear a mask anymore. And, and how long will it take? Will people still wear masks? You know, and sometime probably in the future, people will look back and say, why'd you guys wear masks the rest of your lives for it? COVID was done. And, you're, and your answer is like, well, you don't know what it was like. You didn't live through it, right? I mean, you weren't here, which is something I think we need to understand when we look back at stories in Scripture, right? We weren't there. We don't know what it was like. So when we read in the Scripture, things that seem really clear today because we've listened to the stories, we've got all the Gospels, we've got all the Gospel writers, we've got the New Testament and the Old Testament revealing things that we see that, that now seem pretty clear. And we look back at some of these stories like, well, how did they miss Jesus? I mean, come on. Like, how, how did, I mean, seriously, they must have been blind. And they could say to us, like, you weren't living through it. You don't know what it was like to be here. I mean, it, it's not that simple, Okay. And I think we have to keep that in mind when we look back at these ancient stories and not be so critical about the way they behave. Because I think when we do that, we can probably see a little bit of ourselves in some of them. Even though we weren't there, right? I mean, I think you'll see in this text, you can see yourself in probably all of these audiences, which, you know, says something as well. So, but, so today we want to turn to the Gospel of Mark. And as we did last week, we're going to look at this thing called a prologue, the introduction to his gospel, where he really sets out this idea, Mark does for us, that Jesus is a king. In fact, he's saying his thing to us in a world of, of bad kings and failed kingdoms, that Jesus is the one true king that everyone is really looking for. Really, everyone wants a king like Jesus. We're just used to all these failed and broken kings, and so we really don't understand what it is to, to live under the true king. And so he's going to remind us and he's going to show us today who that king is. But along the way, he's going to ask this question as, he, as Jesus asked the question, well, who am I? Who do you say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And that's his question that really Mark is answering in his gospel. And he does so clearly when you understand the whole gospel. And one of the things hopefully you'll see this week as you read the gospel, because we're challenging you once again this week to read through this gospel. And it's good news, right? Not just because it's the gospel, because it's the shortest gospel in the Bible. It's only 16 chapters, by far the shortest. So it should take you the least amount of time. So good news. 
And we still have the companion guides this week. If you weren't here last week, we have companion guides out at the out of the tables when you came in that'll help guide you through your reading to give you some background that you won't get today so maybe some further things that you can study but some of the things you hear today maybe you can kind of look for as you go through the text as we go through this text today so this is one of the major questions we want to ask today who is Jesus but the other question is like so who does Mark say that he is and I answered that question he's Mark says he's the king and I'll show you how he says that but then he also asked he also gets us to look at say so who does who do the disciples say that he is? And, and who, who do the people say that Jesus is? And how about the leaders? And, and there are other voices that, that weigh in on this. And so we want to look at those questions and understand who do they say he is, you know, in this ancient time? And what can we learn from them? And so we want to dive into that today. And so I want to ask you to pray with me as we begin. Father, we do gather in the name of Jesus, the one true king. And we sang earlier, he's the king of my heart. Father, I pray that you would enlarge in my heart, that you would, that you would grow it, that you would soften it to hear your words today, that those words would penetrate the crust that has developed on my heart this week and that it would grow my heart beyond where it stands today. And I pray you would do that by your spirit, that my words would be your words, my thoughts would be your thoughts. Teach us in this moment every single one of us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark tells us that Jesus is the king, and he tells us in the very first line of his gospel. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And I want to stop there because we, we hear these words read like Messiah and Son of God and, and Jesus Christ and things like that, and we maybe don't understand like Christ isn't his last name, you know, Messiah isn't his last name, but they're titles. And so what do they mean? And, and, and sometimes I find it good to really kind of understand what they mean to understand what Mark is saying. And I think we find that here. What he's saying, Jesus is the Messiah, comes from this Hebrew word, Messiah. And it means to be this anointed one. And we see the same thing in the Greek. This Hebrew word, Messiah, is translated into the Greek as Christos or Christ. So when we see Messiah and we see Christ, in the New Testament, it's the same thing, just a different language being used or, or translated into an English word. So Messiah is the Hebrew word for this anointed or anointed one. Christ is the same word for the same thought. He is the anointed, the anointed one of God. And in the Old Testament, you would see three groups of people anointed by God. You would see priests anointed. You would see prophets anointed by God. And you would see kings, most often anointed by God. We saw that in Saul. We saw it in King David. We saw it in Solomon. And when they were anointed by the priest or by the prophet, the word used there was they were the Messiah. They were God's Messiah. They were his chosen one. And so what Mark is saying to his readers and to us is, when we read the Messiah or we read Christ, we can right there put king to remember that he's king. Not just anointed, but he's the anointed king. And he says he's the son of God, which some manuscripts really don't have that title, but that title in the early Judaism in that time would have been synonymous with anointed one, would have been synonymous with king. 
That's who they thought this one would be, that God would send his anointed one, the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah, to bring the salvation of his people. And, and Mark is announcing he's here. In fact, he says this is the beginning of the good news. And it begins not with Jesus, but it begins with this guy, John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist is the one that's heralding Jesus. He's heralding all of Judea and Jerusalem to come out to him and to repent of their sins. And so they're all coming out to him in droves, we're, we're reading. And people come, and he's preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so people understood what was happening. For 400 years, God had been silent. There were no words from prophets for 400 years. And now this prophet, this voice in the wilderness is calling. And people are coming in droves because God is possibly speaking. And to help us understand, he quotes prophets here. He he puts together a couple different prophecies to say this is who John the Baptist is that he is the voice of this one calling in the wilderness to make straight the paths and the way for the Lord. And so they knew the call. It's like, maybe this is the time. And they're called out to repent. To repent from what? Their sins. But sins for what? For following the bad false kings. Following after these false leaders, the false hope in this world. That's what they'd been doing. They'd put their hope in, in the wrong places. Their allegiances to the wrong kings, the wrong kingdoms. And John is calling them out to repent from that allegiance, to follow, to turn and follow this Lord that he's talking about. And he goes on to say what will happen. And they, they would understand all this because the prophet Ezekiel had prophesied what would happen. And, and this is what Ezekiel said in chapter 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, John is saying, I baptize you with water, but the one that comes after me, he's going to baptize you with the spirit. And they would have known what John was saying. And so they would have looked forward to, to this king, to this Messiah, to this anointed one. And then next on the scene in his prologue is Jesus. It says Jesus shows up. He comes from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Which, I mean, when you read that, when I, when I remember first reading this, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus was baptized? I thought he was without sin. Right? I mean, everybody else is coming out repenting from their sin and being baptized, and here Jesus is coming out and being baptized. Did I hear that wrong? And and I don't believe I did. In fact, I think the answer is in the text when we read the text carefully. Remember what it said about all of Judea and Jerusalem coming out. It said they were coming out Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But in this text, in verse 9, it says, And Jesus came out from Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Do you see what was missing? That confession of sins. 
Jesus doesn't come confessing sins because he has no sins to confess. So why is he coming? Well, first of all, he's coming because he's the obedient son. He does everything the father says to do. And it's the father that sent John the Baptist into the wilderness to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And everyone was called by this prophet to come out and be baptized. And Jesus being the obedient son, he goes out and he is baptized. But not for the remission of his sins. Why is Jesus baptized? Well, we see Jesus go down into the water. And we're told that he comes out of the water. And when he comes out of the water, it says the heavens are rended open. The heavens are split open. And he sees the dove, the spirit coming down like a dove upon him. And he hears this voice and it says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And what we see here is not Mark testifying or the Baptist testifying, but we see God himself testifying to who Jesus is. He's not just a king in the line of kings. He is the king. He is the very son of God. He is God incarnate. What's happening in Jesus' baptism is he is being anointed as that king. See, up until this point, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. Right Now he's known as Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the King. This was his coronation. This was his anointing. This was the announcement to the world that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of the people of Israel, the long-awaited King of the world. And God himself is there testifying to who he is. That is why Jesus is being baptized. It's fascinating when you start understanding what's happening in just these few short verses. And we see Jesus being baptized by John in all of the Gospels. The next thing we see is also in all the Gospels. From there, we're told that the Spirit sent him into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And it's just two short verses here. And in other Gospels, like Matthew and Luke, we read what he's te- how he's tempted. We see, Je- see Jesus' responses to the three temptations of Satan, but we don't see that here. And it's not like he's just trying to save space on a page. He's telling us something for a reason, as we'll see as you go through the text. See, he goes into the desert as king, as the anointed one. And the first person to come to see who he is is Satan. And Satan meets him in the desert. Not to tempt him to sin, but to test him to see who he is. And it turns out he's the real deal. Because we see after that, every time he encounters a demon or someone encountered, someone possessed by a demon, we see the demons, several of them say, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, God Holy One. Have you come here to destroy me? See, they know who he is because Satan now knows who he is. And so they're afraid of him. They shriek at his presence. They understand who he is. Jesus proves himself to be the true king, the one who does not sin, the one who proves himself to be the Messiah, the true king. And then we're told that Jesus comes after John the Baptist is thrown in prison and pronouncing these words, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. 
repent and believe the good news. Jesus says the time has come. Everything has been revealed. The kingdom of God is near. It's not like it's close, we can see it, it's almost here. No, it's present, it's here. Why? Because the king is here. And wherever the king goes, the kingdom is present. Jesus is testifying. He is the king. We see Mark. We see the Baptist. We see the Holy Spirit. We see God the Father. And now we see God the Son testifying to who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the true king that everyone has been looking for. After this, we see Jesus go into the countryside, go into the villages, and he is casting out demons, and he is healing sicknesses, and he's healing diseases, and he's doing all of these miracles to tell everyone who he is so that they could answer this question, who is this Jesus? That's the question that all of them are asking. And, and we see different answers from all of them, from the people, from his disciples, and from the leaders. We see all different kinds of responses. First, from the people, they look at Jesus and they're going, he's the Messiah. They're not quite sure. You know, in, in the middle of John, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, maybe risen because he was dead then. And some say he's Elijah. Some say he's a prophet. But we see later that they believe he's the Messiah. They believe he's the king because when he comes to Jerusalem, they're throwing their coats down and waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Our king has come. But see, their view of a king is not who Jesus is. They see Jesus coming as this earthly king that will reestablish Jerusalem as the capital of the world and the people of Israel as the people of the world, and they will no longer be slaves to anyone. That's the king they believe Jesus is. And they are welcoming him because he's doing a lot for them. He's healing them, and soon he's going to rid the land of these Romans. He's going to make things better. So much better. This land will be his again. We hear that today, don't we? We just want this country to be Christian nation the way it used to be. But it's never been. And then we see his disciples. The ones who were closest to him. Because the next question that Jesus asks in, in chapter 8 is he says to his disciples, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And, and, and he gets it right. Peter gets it right. He says, well, you're the Messiah. And you're like, give Peter an A. But we're a little quick if we do that. Because the very next section, Jesus says for the first time what he, the Messiah, the king, will do. Is that he will go to Jerusalem, he will be handed over to the leaders, he will be crucified and killed, and he will rise to new life in three days. And we're told that Peter turns to him 
And it says, he spoke plainly about this, Jesus did, and then Peter looked at him, took him aside, and began to rebuke him. He said, no, 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 no. I don't think you understand who you are. You're the Messiah. And to Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's like, whoa. They don't get it. They, they, they think Jesus doesn't get who he is. <laughs> He's the only one in the story who does. But he goes again, and he, he's teaching them again. And in chapter 9, again, he says to them that he must go to Jerusalem and die and be killed and handed over, and, but he will be raised in three days. But then it says they did not understand what he means. But here's what I find hysterical. And we're afraid to ask him about it. Right? Because they know what happened last time. Peter's like, I asked him last time. John, you ask him. He's like, I'm not asking him. No, I heard what he called you last time. They don't get it still. They don't understand. But then he goes on to tell them. He said, they were arguing on the road. And he says, what are you arguing? Because he knew what they were arguing about. They were arguing like, who is going to be the greatest in his kingdom? You still don't get it. Even though you didn't ask questions, you still don't get it. You think this is about me coming and you being exalted. Me coming and you having life better. You being in power. You having everything you need. And then he goes on to tell them. He says, sitting them down, he called the twelve to him. He says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And they're like, oh, this, this isn't what a king does. That seems like backwards. That seems like upside down. But then Jesus, a third time, tells them that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must be killed, handed over to the Pharisees, and they will condemn me and put me to death and hand me over to the Gentiles, and I will be, and I will be mocked, and I will be spit on, and I will be flogged, and I will be killed. Three days later, he will, I will rise. And this time, they were just silent. They didn't say a word. But then a little bit later, John and, and his brother, James, comes along and says, Hey, Jesus, when you're king, when they actually crown you as king here in Jerusalem, can I sit on your right and the other one sit on the left? Can we like, be your like, co-leaders? <laughs> Again, they don't get it. And Jesus turns to them and he says plainly, he said, and he calls all these other people to him. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's not only telling them what his kingdom will look like and what his reign will be. He's saying, if you want to be my followers, then you too must pick up your cross and follow me. You too must deny yourself. You too must not use your position, the things that you have to your own advantage, but to use them as I will and serve all. But they still didn't get it. So then he goes to Jerusalem 
and he's talking with all the leaders. And the leaders are clear about who he is. He's not the Messiah. They're like, no, he's a fraud. And then they reveal really what's in their hearts because where they've gotten to, their position is one of authority. And they have a deal struck with Rome. As long as they keep the peace, then things will go well for them. And Jesus is showing all signs that the peace isn't going to be kept. And so we can't let him in. we got to kill him. Because if he comes to power, then everything we've accumulated is going to be gone. And so that's what they do. They kill him on a criminal's cross. But in doing so, they fulfill what Jesus himself had said three times previous. They killed him not because they had the power, but because he had the power by becoming weak and humbling himself, even to death, a death on a cross. And Jesus stands before them all in his death, and he says to all of us who are following him and to his disciples, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that day, everyone walked away, every single one of them. Some walked away happy, justified, told you he wasn't the king, told you he wasn't the Messiah. He's dead. Some walked away disappointed. Well, we really thought he was the one this time. See, he wasn't the first to come and proclaim that he was the Messiah. And his death convinced everybody that, yeah, man, I thought he was the one. And some left completely brokenhearted and saddened because their friend had died. But then three days later, he rises from the dead, as we see in Mark. And it's a very short narrative. And we're told that when the tomb is empty, there's a, uh, there's a person sitting in white inside the tomb, and the, the stone is rolled back. And he says to the women that come into the tomb, he said that he is risen, and he's gone into Galilee just like he said he would, tell his disciples. But the women, trembling and bewildered, went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's where the gospel ends. And you're left going, well, what happens next? Well, some have filled that in. And you'll notice in your Bibles a, a small little insertion that says most of the reliable early manuscripts do not include these next verses. So from the end of his gospel, from 9 to the end, it's, it's an addition. Because some thought, well, maybe it got lost and maybe he just didn't finish it. But when you read Mark's gospel, this short gospel that starts at the beginning of his ministry and ends at the cross and his resurrection, you see what he's asking. He's asking the question Jesus asked at the very middle of the gospel. Who do you say that I am? Will you run away afraid and fearful and not say a word? Or will you go and tell? Or will you bow down to the king? Who do you say that I am? That's the question Mark is asking all of us today. Who do you say that Jesus is? What are your expectations of him? But I want to conclude today by flipping 
this question around. By flipping it around, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this question this way. When you look at Jesus, ask the question, who do you say that I am? And I ask you to ask that question because I know those of you that are baptized and those of you that don't know him, maybe you're still questioning about him, you're wondering, who does he say that you are? And I know you struggle with that. Even those of you that are baptized believers in Jesus struggle with that question. Because in the back of your head, that little voice that's haunted you for a long time has said, you're just pathetic. You're just less than. You, You try really hard, but you always come up short. You struggle. You struggle hearing what God really thinks about you. And in Mark's gospel, he tells us what God says about you. Let's go back to that moment that Jesus is baptized. When Jesus goes down into the water, into the river Jordan and comes up, God the Father says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But before that, we see all of Israel going down into the water. When we understand what Mark is telling us, we see this great exchange that's happening in the waters of baptism. See, when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies for the sins of the world. When he rises, he defeats sin and death and the devil. And that's the good news that Mark is telling us about, that Jesus is a Messiah. He came not to rule like the rulers of this world, but by the true king who serves everyone and wants everyone to come to a saving faith and to be saved and to believe in him. And he says, be baptized. See, what happens in the waters of baptism is when we go into the water, we come out with the righteousness of Jesus, leaving our sins in that water. See, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, when he goes in and comes out, he's wearing our sins. He's clothed with our sins. It's for those sins that he goes to the cross and dies. And so when we come out of the water, there's this great exchange. And in the waters of your baptism, you should hear these words spoken to you. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I know that it's hard for you to understand. I don't know that it's tough for you to really believe. But that is what he's saying to you right now. He has called you righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And he's given you that by faith when that was proclaimed over you in the waters of your baptism or when he produced faith in your heart at the hearing of that gospel. And that's why we say, be baptized. Because there's this great exchange that happens in the waters. And there's this great thing that we can hold on to. And we can repeat to ourselves this line. When we hear these lies that say we're just no good or we're not good enough or you can try harder. We can reply that Jesus said, God the Father says, no, no, no. I am his child whom he loves. With me he is well pleased. And that last line I know 
you struggle over because I know I struggle over it. And I'm like, really? You're pleased with me? Knowing everything there is to know about me? You're pleased with me? But that's what he says. And we need to hear that. And we need to come up out of that water of our baptism every day remembering that. And going forth in this world into the desert that he sends us into. Where we will be tested and tempted and we will come back not victorious all the time, but we will come back confessing where we failed and confessing that we believe the lies we heard there. But he's faithful and just and he repeats this phrase to you. You are my beloved child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Go. Try again. In the power of that love, go and try again. That's what Mark is saying to all of us today. Jesus is the king. And he's calling each of us to go into that wilderness, not, to, not as rulers and, and, and the way the world rules and the, reacting the way the world does and, and holding allegiances to political parties above everything else or, or to beliefs about what Jesus is going to do for me above everything else, but no, going in the name of Jesus like a servant, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And by doing so, as Jesus, we can... We can we can clear up all this confusion about who he is. When we say he's the king, what do we mean? When we say he's the king of my heart, what do we mean? Is he a king or is he an assistant? He says to you, you are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. All glory to God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, how remarkable are those words, those words and how, oh, how crazy are those words that you would be pleased with me, that, that you would call me son. And I confess before you today that I seek to keep the things that are mine I seek to want to do the things I want to do and, and do them in your name. I confess to you that I see you as the king for my ways. Father, we confess to you right now those ways in our heart that we have lowered you to the and delegated you to a role of assistant and not really to the kingship, the Lord of our lives. But your words are ringing in my ears. The words that say that you are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Father, may those words soften the crust of my heart. May those words give us all a heart of flesh for those people that are around us today, for those people who irritate us today. Father, give us a heart of flesh to serve those, to pray for our enemies, to love those that persecute us. May we pick up our cross today and follow Jesus into this desert, knowing that you go with us, knowing that you will strengthen us and meet us there. We ask you for that strength. In Jesus' name, amen.